Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ore Ogunbayi, who is a speaker, trainer, and author of the book, Knocked for Six. I personally benefited from Ore's training. It really is powerful. She is a powerful person and very much empowering as well. She's overcome some significant challenges, which you'll learn about in this episode, and used those challenges as fuel for her growth and her progress as well. It's a great episode. She has a really inspiring story, and I really hope that you will enjoy it and benefit from it. If you do, by all means, feel free to pass it on and feel free to subscribe to the podcast as well. Enjoy. All right, Ogunbayi, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me on the Real Clear Values podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. All right, I have to say, I've been to quite a few public speaking training sessions, and I have had the privilege of attending two sessions that you've run. And I say two because the first one was so good that I had to go back a second time. And I think it was actually the same, the same course, if I'm not mistaken, the, the same session, more or less. Is that correct? It was, it was, it was. And thank you for the compliment. <laughs> yeah, super. Well, well, it, it's a genuine compliment because it was very empowering for me because certainly the, the first time that I did it, I was very early in my public speaking days, so to speak. And I was figuring out who I was in relation to, to finding my own voice on the stage and who am I to, to be saying anything. And your session really helped me to to, to get out of myself and get out of my own way in that respect and realize that actually everybody's got these natural insecurities about being the center of attention unless you maybe may, maybe some people like that more than others but 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 I'm in the camp where I'm not necessarily shy of going on stage and speaking but I, I still have my own my own things my own reticences about about being the center of attention so thank you again for that it was it was fantastic so I'm excited to speak with you today or because there's so much that you can talk about and you've got such an interesting and unique journey. And what really stood out to me from what I recall from your journey is the story of kidnapping. And I'm not going to say any more than that for now, because I want you to tell the story because you'll tell it far better than I will. So I don't want to insert too much more, but could you tell us that story please, Ari, and, and how it relates to your overall path and purpose? Of course, yes, I'd, I'd be very happy to tell you my story. Well, my life started out with me being born to Nigerian parents who'd come over to England at a very young age, in their 20s, to come and study. A long story short, they found themselves in a situation where they had to study full time, but also work in order to pay their bills, which is something that they hadn't originally anticipated. And so when my mother got pregnant and then had me, they had a dilemma as to how they were going to take care of a baby in the midst of the, the lifestyle that they had, which wasn't really quite a lifestyle. And so when I was three months old, the, de the de decision had been made that I would be given to foster parents to, to be looked after. So at the age of three months, I was handed over to foster parents. My, my father, my new father was a Scottish man and my new mom was an English lady. So the first seven years of my life, I was raised in, in an English home. And I was raised in Maidstone in Kent, which was a wonderful, it was a wonderful part of my, my life. I remember 
well, I can recall, because it was many years ago. But, you know, people always say that people don't really remember what it is you do or what it is you say. They tend to remember, you know, if you cared, how you made them feel. And I, I can recall that my father, my foster father, made me feel as if I was the most important person to him in the world. They couldn't have children of their own. So when they got me at three months old, it was it was like an answer to a prayer. And so my foster dad really made it his duty to ensure that I I grew up to be a confident young young child who felt safe and secure. He provided well for me. He told me he made me feel that being brown was like a, a special gift that not everyone had that privilege back then because I was only one of three black children in my school. So he made me feel that everything I was, was empowering for me. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful life. Then two months before I turned seven years old. So this was in, in December. So it was, and, and I'm a February baby. So this Friday is my birthday. So this was Feb um, December. I was really excited because it was Christmas time. And my mother had said that we were going to an, an event in London. And so off we went, it was an African event and I was really excited to go. Anyway, we were at, the, at this event and one of the, one of the older people there, the mature people there came over and she was talking to me about Christmas and what I was getting from Santa. And I was loving this conversation because I love Santa. And then she said to me that they had a wonderful present planned for me that particular Christmas. So this is her and my mom. And I thought, oh, gosh, OK, tell me what it is. And she said that, well, they were taking me to Barbados to watch a Michael Jackson concert. Now, she had my attention because I wanted to go to the Caribbean because I'd seen pictures. And Michael Jackson was sort of like a pinup in my room. There was Michael Jackson and then there was Donny Osmond. They were my two mm. guys. And so the name Michael Jackson, I thought, yes, I'd love that. And then she said to me, but because you live in Maidstone, you can't get a passport. So your mum has said that I can take you from this party so that you can get your passport made in London. And so I thought, okay. And I remember saying to this individual who I knew, she was no stranger to me. I said to this individual, okay, that's fine, but I'm just gonna go check with my mom to see if it's okay if I can go with you. And she said, oh, there's no need to do that. I've just double checked with her. And she said, it's okay that I can take you. And so I went along with her. And at that moment, I was taken from my foster parents. I was, I was kidnapped, I was abducted, whatever name you want to give it, but I was taken. But I did not know that this is what was happening until quite some time later on, mm. when we actually did get a passport, did board a flight. I was expecting my mother to be at the, on the other side of, of, the, of the journey and she mm. wasn't there. And then everything just unfolded. Um, so sorry, Ari, just, just, just to chip in on that point. How old were you again when this was all taking place, when this was all happening? I was six, a two months away from turning seven. Wow. So very, a very young age and a very impressionable age. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, up to that point, up to that point, I had never been separated from my parents. Hmm. I, I mean, my foster parents here. I did not know that they were my foster parents, even though they were white and I was I was black. It never occurred to me that they were not my real mom and dad. And people, people may say, especially when I'm talking to young people about it, I could see them thinking, but really, are you blind or stupid? How come you didn't work that out? And I'm thinking, well, I was six. I didn't understand how you had babies. I recall what one time when I asked my mom that, how do you get a baby? She said to me, you go shopping. 
or you order a baby from a catalog. And I just assumed that they went shopping one day and they saw me amongst maybe 20 other babies. And because my dad always told me how being brown was such a gift, he was not stupid. So he just picked me out of, mm. out of all the other babies. And, and so as far as I was concerned, they were all I knew. It was three months till almost seven years old that I was with them. I never once questioned that they were my mum and dad. Mm. And then I was taken. Wonderful. And so I lost wonderful. everything. Uh, sorry, I, I say wonderful that, that you never that you never questioned that you never had cause yeah. to question. You felt you felt that that safety and that in, inclusivity and inclusivity is a big word at the moment. But you yeah. felt that the, the most I think the most important inclusivity inclusivity at home as a child and and the safety and security that that you are loved unconditionally and that you are special as well and that every like you say every point of difference is a strength and it's something that makes you special and I think that's. I think that's wonderful. I, I, I wish we would see more of that in the world where we can we can understand and appreciate that we are all different and that these differences can be massive compliments, complements, yeah. L-E rather than L-I, to each other in, in building something yes. bigger that, than any one of us could build on our own. Oh, believe me, Tom, it is huge. I mean, I work predominantly with young people. I've trained to date over 60,000 young people in the art wow. of public speaking. And I also deliver mental health training as well. And every time I'm with young people, and I tend to get about 30 at a go, and I get to spend the whole day with them. So I go into a school and I take, they're taken out of lessons and I get the privilege of working with them all day. And I'm always... Putting, I tell them my story and I tell them that the biggest lesson I learned and one I would like to share with them is that we are all one people. Love mm. knows no color. A black child doesn't need a black foster parent. And yes, they may say, well, maybe they may need a bit of culture. Well, when I was a baby, I did not need culture. I needed love. Mm. Wow. I love that. I love that. That you could you could make a bumper sticker out of that, and it would and it should go viral on social media. If you, that I, I don't always agree with bumper stickers because sometimes I think they oversimplify things. But that one I think is is really it really has some merit to it. And it really is an idea that that is worth spreading to to kind of phrase. So anyway, Ari, I'm sorry I, I I interrupted there and knocked you off your story. So no worries. You've, you've been you've been separated from from your parents, and it's the first time you've been separated from your foster parents since you, you yes. joined the home. So, so what happens next? So we're now, in, we're, we're now in Africa. We're not in Barbados, by the way. I'm still thinking I'm in Barbados because it's hot, it's, it's sunny, lots of black people everywhere, palm trees. It almost looks like the pictures I've seen. So I'm assuming I'm in Barbados and I'm now inquiring after my mom. You know, why isn't my mom meeting us, you know, at the airport? And I was told that, well, she'll join us in a couple of days. And... I wasn't happy with that answer because I'd already been separated from her for about two weeks because it took two weeks to get the passport. And so two more days seemed like an eternity for a six-year-old, but I had no choice anyway. I was already in Barbados and I'd already waited two weeks. And let's face it, going to see a Michael Jackson concert was worth sacrifice. So I was going to be a good girl. So And, and so I, I decided to wait. But for me, at six, two days meant exactly that, two days, as it would for any child. And so two days later, I check in with them when my mother hasn't arrived. And it was at that point that, and, and I can't, I can't, I usually role play this when I'm working with young people, but I can't do this on this kind of a, a platform because it's, it's, it's going to sound like yelling. But somebody just suddenly yelled at me with a very strong African accent 
a sound that I was not used to at that time to say that I should shut up my mouth. I keep asking for this woman. This woman that I'm asking for is not my mother. She's my nanny. Now, of course, this, this, this hit me quite powerfully, but of course I'm not buying into this because I think it's a lie. And so I, I start, decide to argue that no, because in my mind, nanny means paid help who looks after your kids. That's what nanny meant to me. And my mom definitely was not a, a nanny. She was my mommy. And so I decided to argue. And of course this person, because we're now actually in Africa, we're not in Barbados, is yelling at me, which is something I'm not used to. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I know that they're not telling the truth because I know who my mommy and my daddy are, but they are frightening me because something tells me that something's wrong here. That why would they be saying su such lies? And I started to worry that I was not gonna see my mommy again, but, some, but I reassured myself by thinking, I know that my mom and dad love me, so they're gonna come and get me. It never occurred to me at this point that they didn't know where I was. It never occurred to me that I had been taken without their consent up to this point. I, I, I don't know this. So I decided that I'm going to wait for my mummy. But while I wait, I'm going to go out and play with some other children because six-year-olds are resilient. You get a bit of bad news, you cry for two minutes, and then you're over it, and then you want a sweetie and you want to play. So yeah. I thought, I'm just going to go and play, and my mummy's going to come and get me. So I decided to go out and play. Now it's interesting because I know that my story is mine and I'm not expecting anyone to buy into my beliefs, my set of values, but my values are mine. And so I can only speak from a place of authenticity. And mm. in, in saying this, I don't mean to cause any offense because I don't know who may be watching this podcast um, later on. But my experience as a child was this. When I was in Maidstone, I was one of three black children. And not once did I ever feel that I did not belong. Not once did I ever think I was different. And now here I am, I've just been told some news that I'm not quite embracing and I'm going out to play with children who are supposed to be my people. And what I get is rejection. So I go out there and say, hello, with my English accent. Hello, my name is Ore, would you like to be my friend? And the next thing I get is, eh? is this fat girl that wants to come and play with us mm. I had never experienced rejection in my life I did not believe mm. that this was happening I, I just did not know how to take this so already I've just been hit with a blow and it's why I've I've called my book knocked for six because I was really knocked out of my waters mm. and and so I've just been, received some news that I'm trying to deal with. Now I'm experiencing rejection. Clearly these children don't like me and it was just too much. And from that moment on, I was called names yeah. because my reaction wasn't a reaction of strength because I'd lost everything, Tom. I'd lost my home. I was only used to Maidstone. I, I'd lost my school. I had a puppy as well. My puppy separated from, from my puppy. I, and now I was in this new place I, I couldn't understand what people were saying. Everyone could speak English, by the way, but I couldn't speak, understand what they were saying. So they had an advantage. I'd never eaten Nigerian food up to that point. I, so, so I was totally out of, I was, <laughs> how can I put it? I was out of my depth. Hmm. And so I was now operating from a place of weakness. 
And so when the name calling started, I didn't know how to stand up for myself. And because I was now vulnerable and weak, they continued. They called me Fatso. They called me Roly Poly, Elephant. They called me Okotombo, Rokboto, you know, names that I couldn't even understand. And the name calling continued. Eventually, I realized that my mom wasn't coming. I didn't understand why, mm. but I realized that she wasn't coming. And of course, uh, it felt like I'd been abandoned. Mm. I did not understand at that point that she had no idea where I was. So as a child, so I had that weight on my mind as well. And I was trying to navigate through this new world and I was really struggling. And I continued the struggle. I made a friend when I was about eight years old who was slightly older than me, who thankfully came to my rescue. So she was quite a strong personality. So she would stand up to bullies for me. She'd help me learn the language. I then had a, a younger, I had a younger brother who was already in Nigeria and he understood some of the language. So he would, he would help me because the person who had taken me was my birth mom. Hmm. And there's a whole story uh, around that, which I've, I only have the full details now since mm. writing my book last, last year. I now yeah. have a full picture of really what went down. I was, and so I was there were many ask, victims. To, sorry, yeah. Ari, just to, to chip in there again. I was about to ask who, who the kidnappers were and what the motives were, but um, I, I imagine that, that took quite some unraveling in itself because one, once you're back and, and you're not happy, what, 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 do, the, what do they want with you? <laughs> what, why have they taken you? Exactly, and um, I, I knew. I only knew when I got old enough, and I, you know, I kept on asking, "When is my mummy coming?" Because I wasn't giving up. And when when she wasn't coming, I said, "Okay, I'm going to write to my mummy and try and tell her where I am." And I was being told that they don't live there anymore, and 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 I'd already accepted defeat to some to some extent. But what I what I was told, and it is true, but for many years I still didn't see it as a good enough excuse until last year when I wrote my book. But what I was told was that when I was six years old, there was in the news of the world, an article about a law that was going to be passed to favor foster parents who had been looking after a child for six years or more, that those foster parents could apply for adoption and those children would become theirs. And my mom said, my birth mom said that her intention was never to give me away, but they could, they had no choice when they handed me over to foster parents and that they wanted to hand me over to foster parents who would love me. But they never thought that it'd come to a point where my foster parents would want to keep me. And then when that announcement was made that they, my mom noticed a look on the, in their faces. And that's when she got scared. And then she orchestrated this whole party that this event, she, they orchestrated it. They got themselves a, a getaway driver. They planned mm -hmm. a kidnapping. I mean, it was a full on criminal. Wow. <laughs> I, I laugh about it now, yeah. but um, it really impacted my life for many years. And uh, I, might, I mean, my mom is one of the sweetest people you can meet today, but she was a proper criminal. I mean, mm. and I paid the price of that choice. Yeah. Yeah, you got, you, got, you, got, you got the culture, but you didn't have the love. That, that's a strange thing. Like you said, you didn't, yeah, yeah. You, you didn't need the culture, you needed the love, and that's what you had originally. Exactly. But then you got exactly. the culture, but you didn't understand the culture because you weren't part of that culture, and it was, it was completely yeah. foreign to you. But, but you didn't yeah, feel I the felt, love. So. Yeah, I felt, I, felt, I felt the love from my parents, my, my, my birth parents. Yeah. 
but I felt rejection within the community. Yes. And I, I felt like the ugly duckling of my own story. It felt like I was always on the outside looking in. Now I realized that that was the Nigerian way. They picked on anyone who was weak. Mm. That was what it was. They, that's just, their, you know, that's what they did. You know, if you were, the, it, it was the survival of the fittest. Yeah. You know, if you were weak, you, you got devoured. You know, you became mm. prey. Yeah. And but I wasn't equipped for, for, for that world. I had not experienced that in Maidstone. And so because I wasn't equipped, what then started to happen is that the confidence that I had as a child. It was being chipped away so that by the time I was 14 years old. I hated myself. I would wake up every morning and I would say. Why can't I be somebody else? I just want to be somebody else, anybody else but me, because I don't think I could do me anymore. And then at the age of 14, I then experienced the biggest humiliation of my life. And only those who have told my story to in full or who have read my book would be aware of this. But I had been invited to a party by my friend that the eight, when I was eight years old, the, the girl who befriended me, she eventually moved away when she was 13, which was hard for me but she had set me up to survive. She, she had really helped me, but I wasn't thriving, Tom. I wasn't thriving. I was just thriving as a being. I, you know, I, I didn't feel as if I was living a life of joy and I definitely did not like me at all. And so she moved away. Then when she was turning 15 years old, she invited me to her birthday party. Now she had grown into this really cool, popular girl. Everyone liked her, it, it, everyone knew her name. And fortunately for me, she loved me regardless. She loved me unconditionally. And so even though I just looked like, I mean, let's put it this way. Nobody invited me to their party until she did. That, that's how much of an ugly duckling I was. So when she invited me to a party, I was very, very excited to go along. That, oh my gosh, somebody outside of the family is inviting me to their party. And so off I went to this party, really looking forward to it. And as I get to, as I get to her house, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's probably so that I don't cry on your podcast. As I get to the house, I'm walking up to the door and there are people outside, young people outside, just mulling around, chatting as they do in a, in, in a hot climate. And I get to the door and I'm about to go in and there are a couple of boys standing there, never seen them before in my life. And they just go, excuse me. What do you want? And I was like, oh my gosh, because I wasn't expecting it. I said, well, I'm here for my, I'm, I'm struggling to breathe as well. I'm like, well, I'm here for my friend's party. And I mentioned her name and they looked at me up and down like this. And they looked at each other through the corner of their eyes and looked back at me. And one of them said, are you sure? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I can't believe it. So I know what are you sure means? Cause I'd, I'd been abused for years. I mean, I was 14 now. I, I was called names from the moment I got to Africa. So I, I knew what they meant. They were looking at me to, to say, how can somebody like her, a popular girl, know somebody like you? And so I said, could you please go and get my friend and she will tell you that she invited me. And this is always a learning point when I'm, I'm training young people because I say to them, your sound determines your outcomes. And so when it comes to public speaking, when it comes to making an impression, you need to check your sound. And so I said, could you please go and get my friend? And she'll tell you that she invited me. So they said, okay, so off they went. So when they went away, people are giggling and laughing because I've now become the entertainment. And when they come back, so I'm thinking to myself, my friend's going to come to the door. She's going to rebuke them. Once she sees it's me, I'm going to be validated. So the people who are giggling and laughing 
are going to say, oh my gosh, so it's actually her friend. And I would be honored, so to speak. But they came back empty handed, stood right in front of the door, arms folded, looked me straight into the eyeballs in an intimidating way and said, sorry, we can't find her. And just stood there looking at me like this. So I had no other option but to turn around and leave. It was the biggest humiliation of my life. It took me two hours and three buses to get home that day. And I remember that I cried all the way home. And by the time I got home, I concluded that, Ori, do you know what? You are the most useless, worthless person that I know. So that's when I was at 14. It wasn't, it wasn't a place <laughs> that I'd like any young person to, to, to be at, which is why I'm so passionate when I'm working with young people, because I want them to get that their voice is a powerful tool and yes. they need to know how to use it. Because if I had been trained when I was 14 years old, when those bullies came back and said, sorry, we can't find her, I would have checked my sound. And I would have said to them, well, I insist you go and get my friend. And if she comes to the door and tells me that I'm not invited, then I'll leave. And that mm. would have been a command because they would have said, okay, but I didn't know how. Yeah. And so now I'm dedicating my life to helping young people and anyone who wants to hear anything from me, I want to help them find that place in life where they're thriving, not just surviving. Cause I know the difference now. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a really powerful, that, that, that particular part of the story is, is very powerful. And like you say about how checking your voice and, and getting the right tone, not just in how your voice sounds, but in how you position things as well. Don't, let them have the power and just take their word for it you have legitimacy in being there you have been invited there and they are employed if you like to carry out the wishes of the person whose party it is so it's it's interesting to, to think about these sorts of dynamics and I think the difficulty is is when when if we do feel insecure and especially I think it's especially difficult for young people when there are elements of difference and there are so many dimensions of difference that I can't think that that we can just look at one one or two aspects of, of difference and diversity and think that's it because there are so many things it's it's cognitive diversity as well and how people see the world and how people understand things how people learn and how people communicate I just I just feel as though it's so important that people are able to be comfortable in their own skin and love themselves love themselves for who they are and appreciate that that they are who they are and realize that actually I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else but there's nobody else in the world who I would rather be than me and getting to that point and I think once people are at that point then they can do what you said in terms of checking the voice and and re repositioning things so that they are not the the recipients of whatever the gatekeeper is going to give them but instead they're a a powerful negotiating partner, shall we say. Yeah, that's correct. And, and, it, and it is a journey. And one of the things I say to the young people, because I try and catch them early, because in order, because confidence, public speaking is a wonderful thing to be able to do. And it, it is one way of, of building self-confidence, but it's mm. not the only aspect of, of self-confidence. Self-confidence is a thing where we, because what I really sought as a young person was acknowledgement appreciation and acceptance but i i have learned that first i need to practice practice self-acknowledgement 
self-appreciation and self-acceptance before I can expect, before I can become a people magnet. I need to be all those things for myself. So two of the things that I say to the young people, and one of them is actually a quote from a gentleman whose name you will recognize, Spencer W. Kimball. And it goes like this. Well, I've actually, I, I, I've um, ad-libbed it only so that you can have a bit more of an effect when I'm working with young people. But his exact words are, if you are tired of being a doormat, get off the floor. Love it. He spoke Love to it. the sisters, some sisters about that, some, some women. So when I'm working with the young people, I tend to sort of like maybe make it a bit more dramatic. So I say to them, mm. if you are sick and tired of being a doormat, get off the floor. Mm. That's one thing I say to them. The other thing I say to them is this, that each one of the young people, if I, and this goes to every human being, is a walking treasure chest. All of us have value. We have talents, we have knowledge, we, we have experience, we have memories, we have thoughts, opinions. We are packed full of wisdom. Most of us don't know it. Another thing that we don't know is that we automatically assume that everyone else is perfect and they get to judge who we are. And no, they're not qualified because they need to be checking themselves and sorting themselves out. So what I say to, to the young people is your mindset should be, should be this. Number one, if somebody isn't perfect, they don't actually have the right or are qualified to judge you. Number two, you are enough. And the only thing that you owe yourselves, your family, your teachers, your employers, your community, and if you believe in God, your God, is to be the best version of you. That's all you can do. You cannot become somebody else, no matter how hard you try. But how about working on who you are, skilling yourself up, developing your talents, being proud of your achievements, being kind to other people, being thoughtful, not being one of the bullies. If you can do that to the being that you already are, then nobody can ask you anymore. Mm. And, and that part, there's so many great points in there. It's like a bit of a gold mine that you've just given us there, Ori. I love the point about qualification in terms of looking at who is qualified to judge you, who is qualified to, to rank you in some arbitrary system or hierarchy. Because when we actually break it down and we look at who said what and how it's affected us, we're in a position then to take the power back and think, well, who are they to say that or to, to put me in this box or something? It, it's, it's kind of nonsensical and we can kind of laugh about it afterwards. But I really like, I really like what you say there in terms of just stepping into who we are and being being the best version of ourselves and and not being one of the bullies this is this is i think this is a crucial point and it gets it gets missed a lot of times because i think people think it's something that parents tell their kids when they're being bullied they say they're there the, the bullies are just are just scared or that they're just weak or they're just cowards really but in all seriousness i think it sometimes it takes real strength of character and moral fortitude not to be a bully if that is the culture that you are in, if you are in a situation where people are bullied for being different or for sticking out in any way, shape or form, then it can be difficult not to join in with that, not to join in with the gossip, not to join in with the backbiting, the, the, the snipes, the sneers, the scoffs, yeah. etc. cetera. And, and this is something that Stephen Arkovy spoke about. He, he spoke about, he, he called them metastasizing cancers and, and those things were, you know, complaining, criticizing, contending, competing, comparing. And it's so easy to, and, and that's why they metastasize, because it's so easy to fall into that. So I think we really do need to get into who we are and focus on that path ahead instead of 
looking left and right and trying to peg ourselves against him or her in the grand scheme of things because all of that is noise it's all nonsense and we see it as nonsense when we grow into ourselves and we get on the path because when we get on the path we realize actually i've got a, work, a lot of work to do here I've, I've got to focus i've got to i've got to learn i've got to create i've got to contribute and that all takes a lot of a lot of time and energy we don't have time to be squabbling and, and pointing fingers at other people yeah yeah it's so true and and the thing is whatever we put into the universe sooner or later it's going to come back to us you know so because for instance i was fortunate to be able to be reunited with my foster parents i was 20 when that time came but it did come it did come and so yet there is a happy ending to my story. The happiest ending to my story is who I have now become. And I don't think I could have become who I am now without what I've been through. Mm. I think my level of empathy wouldn't be powerful enough to impact lives the way that I notice that I do when I'm working with people, both, both young, and, young and mature. I, I feel because I have lived through certain things and of course, I had that very strong start with my foster parents. So I had that to eventually draw upon. I had to find that six-year-old. I had to find her again mm. and then have the mature version of who she once was. Because I remember when I was six years old, I got myself a boyfriend who happened to be 16. The young people always scream when I say that. Mm. And I just saw this 16-year-old and I liked him and I just went for it. Mm. You know, and, and that's how powerful I was as a six-year-old. I had no shame. I didn't even mm. think anybody thought it was inappropriate or he was too old. I just thought he was handsome and I was I was going to marry him. And so I just went up and just, you know, staked my claim. And he was so stunned. He had nothing. He could say nothing else to me that when I said, would you like to be my boyfriend? All he could say was, of course, because I, I stunned him. I caught him off guard. Mm, sure. And because he was kind, he wasn't going to break the heart of of a six-year-old and that's who I was when I was little mm. but when I was a teenager I was just a doormat I, mm. I, to be honest and this is not me being insulting I was pathetic mm. and I own that I want to be authentic about it because it's important that I show especially young people that you can go from that place to being a powerful being yeah who people will listen yes. to and respect you can make that journey you just need to get off the floor yeah but it, it's important I, I, I like I like a lot of what you just said there, Ori, in terms of in terms of getting off the floor, but in terms of in terms of owning it as well, in terms of owning where you were, taking ownership of that and calling it what it was. Yeah, well, I, I was in a pathetic state, but I didn't stay there. And I think sometimes acknowledging where we are and acknowledging that it's not where we want to be is a great starting point because that in itself can be empowering. It can give us the opportunity to make a choice to choose something different. And also what, what, what I like, what really stands out about your story, Ori, and I think so many of us can, can learn from this, is that you didn't choose to be resentful about this. You took the trials that you had and you recycled them, you used them as rocket fuel, you used them as growth fuel to learn and to grow and to develop. And like you say, and I think this, we can only really do this when we're looking backwards. We can only join the, the dots looking backwards in life. We can't join them looking forwards because we don't know all the dots that are there. They haven't all appeared yet. But, but you can see now what all these things meant in relation to your, your path and who you've become. Think, things make sense. It's not like life is some sick joke. And I talk to people about this because 
there was a time in my life where I thought that it was a bit of a sick joke. Why, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Who is this? Who is this God that I'm supposed to believe in that is allowing all these things to happen? And it, it really seemed pretty messed up and pretty sick. But actually, I came out of that and I realized that, well, when this happened, it allowed for that to happen. And there's no such thing as a free lunch. So we might like everything to just work out and to be this fairy tale where it all just works out in the end and it's all nice and there's a nice little bow put on it and it's all very neat, but it doesn't work like that. It's so messy. And, and like you say, it's, it's the detail, isn't it? I, I've personally found in, in my own journey, it's the detail, it's the little things, the, those little nuggets that you, you feel, that you see, that you experience, that actually one day that pops up to the fore and you're able to then use that thing to serve somebody else. Yes, you're so, so right. I have a friend who, who is in the speaking business and he, he says to me, he says, everybody has a story in them. Everybody has a book that they could write. And um, it, I, it, I, what I find really sad sometimes is when people don't really notice the king or queen that they actually are. Because I remember something that my mentor said to me in my early years of taking up public speaking as, as a profession and then going into training and using my experience to help other people find a voice. He said to me, he said, no matter who you become, Ore, always remember that every man you meet is superior to you in some way. And I've always respected that because it resonated well with me that if I am to be valued as a human being, then I need to recognize that each person I meet, it doesn't matter how young they are or how elderly they become, there is something that they can do better than I can. And for that one thing alone, they deserve my respect and mm. I need to value that human being. Mm. Something else that I say to my young people as well, because I say to them, because if we're going to get over this thing of people feeling that they need to join in and because people are, you know, people are being bullies. And if you don't join in, you're going to be the outsider is getting them to also see that the human being that you may decide to pick on or call a name has value. There mm. is something that they can do that you can't. You benefit more from being their friend. You'll benefit more from embracing diversity in whatever form that may take. Your life will be richer for embracing difference mm. and for recognizing that every human being matters. You yeah. will thrive. You will have a life of joy. Yeah. And um, I love it when I can see a light bulb go on in their heads as because young people are sponges. They suck it all in mm -hmm. when you talk to them and they look at you as if you're some kind of hero. And um, I do enjoy sort of like it, that sort of like hero syndrome once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's such a great point, though. And I love that you highlight that everybody else that you meet can do something better than you. And, and, and that's what it comes down to. So it doesn't have to be fluffy and idealistic. So, so when we're talking about diversity, we don't have to be fluffy and idealistic. We're, we're just talking about facts. We're just talking about yeah. facts. It's, it's much better to have complementary people working together who can do things that the other can't, but then they come together and they form something that's greater than the sum of its parts. It's, it's axiomatic. It, there's nothing fluffy. There's nothing there's nothing nice about it. It just, it just is the way that things are. It, it's, it's simple facts. And so I love how you, how you make that so clear in the way that you speak about this. And that's what I think convinces, from, from a logical point of view, I think young people, like, like you mentioned about young people being sponges, 
they're also smart as well. They can also figure out, they can, they can, they can sniff things out. So if something's off yeah. or if it doesn't make sense or, or if someone's trying to hoodwink them, I think, I think they, they can, they can suss that out as well. So I think that they appreciate the, the logic of that and they can actually, when, when they apply it to the real world and they think, okay, well, this is what Ori's told me. How does it apply to what I've experienced so far? Or how can I take it with me into my future experiences? And when they look around, they can see, well, actually, yeah, there's, there's truth in that. And, and that is how things work. I just want to talk now a little bit, Ori, about your, your values, because of course, this is the Real Clear Values podcast. And I, I just, I am interested in this. And some of these things, we can infer what some of your values are. I mean, some of the things you've stated directly and, and explicitly already, but, but what would you say your core values are in relation to the work that you do now with young people in helping them from the experience that you went through yourself? The first core value, and I think this applies to every aspect of life, it should apply to all of us, is to be authentic. You, know, you keep it real, you keep it honest, and be your authentic self, because only that way will you make impact. The second thing is to actually genuinely care about others. And the third thing for me is to add value. And, and those are always the, the things that I keep at the back of my mind whenever I'm delivering training or whenever I'm speaking, you know, am I being authentic? Do I care about other people? And am I adding value? Because if one of those things is missing, it could be a waste of their time. Absolutely. I, I think that that as a, as, a, as a triple prong, so to speak, that, that's pretty much bang on because authenticity means that you're being yourself. You're not, you're not lying. Caring, everything comes back to care for me because like you said, you didn't need culture, you needed love. Well, what is love? Love is care. Love in action is care. It's putting, yeah. putting the needs of others before our own pleasures, our own desires. It's having 10 minutes, 10 minutes spare. What do you do with that 10 minutes? Do you use it to to mess about entertaining yourself on TikTok or YouTube, or to use that 10 minutes to do the washing up or, or help somebody, somebody in the home or in your, in your vicinity. So it's, it's very interesting that, that this comes out. And then, like you say, adding value, adding value, you know, making a contribution. It's, it's so important to be able to, to do that in a way that really does help somebody else, that really does serve somebody, so that it's not just about you doing what you want or what you think, but it's, it's understanding them. It's like you say, it comes back to that, empathy doesn't it um i just yeah. want to talk i just want to talk going back to what you said about authenticity there's something that I, I made really good notes from from the sessions that that you ran on public speaking in the past and there's there's a sentence of yours that i actually wrote down i pulled it out in preparation for this for this talk okay. and, and you said never be afraid to tell the truth when the intention is good oh gosh did i say I that think, okay yeah you did well <laughs> according to my notes you did I, I, I pride myself on being a pretty good note taker because if I'm if I'm doing training, then I want to learn and I want to be able to refer back to it. It's the kind but, of thing I would say. <laughs> but 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 I love that that you say about the intention and the, the intention yeah. being good because I think we live in a world now where people are happy to say, well, it's just facts, just the truth. And they'll say some really cruel things which aren't balanced with anything else. And they're not very empathic. They really confessing the sins of, of another person or other people and they they're, they're entirely unbalanced and and they're not born out of good intention that they're there to, to tear people down so I love that you said that I love that you know when we talk about authenticity 
and I'm assuming you still stand by this, and I think you do probably still stand by this. Oh gosh, yes, I I, I say it. Um, I, I, it's just that the, when you quoted me, it just sounded beautiful. It sounded like a lovely state. But I, yes, I do say that to, to the young people that, you know, because I want to encourage them to get up and speak. And I would say to them, number one, your speeches have to be positive. They have to edify, mm. enable, empower, add value you know, to, to your audience. And I said, if you get up and you your intentions are good and you want to share something positive with your audience, if one person laughs, it's on them. It's mm. not on you. And you should never be afraid to get up and say the right thing. Yeah. And and so, yeah, that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I would say. And yes, I do stand by that still. The other thing as well, just to pick out, and this, this is like a, a small point that, that you made there, Ori, about if one person laughs, it's on them. I also think as well, in terms of character, and you were talking about the culture in Nigeria and how weakness is really, or signs of weakness are really punished in Nigeria. I actually think if you are in that situation and one one person or more laugh, but you carry on anyway, how strong is that to be able to do that, to be able to say, you know what, they don't get this, they're laughing at me, but I'm going to stand there and deliver. How how can people not respect that? How can people how can you not win people exactly. over? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like even the bullies that have got to at a fundamental human level have got to respect the resilience of, of somebody course. who's able to to, to, to stand and deliver in that context. Of course, but I, I, I just I just want to say something quickly, only because I don't want this to be misunderstood, and I don't know how many Nigerians are going to watch this. And my experience as a child was that you know if you were weak, of course people are going to pick on you. I'm not mm. saying that the average Nigerian is a sure. bully, or if you're weak, they're not. Because <laughs> I know many many Nigerians that are are kind and hospitality in Niger in Nigerian culture is a big thing. And um, if you're a guest, people take care of you. But when we were younger, it just really was mm. the survival of the fittest dog eat dog world. And if you've yeah. got a weak <laughs> one, then you get you you get picked on. That's how that's just how it was. Mm. And I used to take it personally. I used to think there was something wrong with me. What was it about me that they didn't like? But now I recognize it, the fact mm. that it was just that I was I was weak and it didn't help that I tend I was overweight as well. So that it gave them something that they could pick on to mm. use to make me feel small. Yes. Yeah. And that and that's the point. And that, that's kids anywhere, isn't it? In terms of in terms of looking for that difference. And the sad thing is, is that one of the things that can bind people more than anything is having a common enemy or a common butt of the joke or something negative like that and I think part of growing up and moving on from that is, is learning that there are more worthy ways of uniting with other people there are more worthy things to, yeah. to talk about and focus on all right it has yeah. been such a pleasure to speak with you it's it's always great speaking with you I love I love learning from you and I'm sure that people listening to this will glean a lot of value from it if they would like to glean more value from you from your story What's the book called that you've written and how else can you help? So the book is called Knocked for Six with the four being an actual number. So it's knocked number four and then six as in as in letters. So knocked mm -hmm. for six and my book's on Amazon. I am on LinkedIn. And so if anybody wants to, to connect with me on LinkedIn and then if they want to ask me any questions, then I think LinkedIn would be the perfect place to establish that kind of a professional relationship. And mm. I also have a website, which is ore-lu.com. Super. Thank you so much, Ore. God bless. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this, Tom. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.